Well, hey, if this is your first time with us, thanks for being at MCC this morning. Uh, my name is Mike, and I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, you have picked, by the way, a great morning to be here because today we're concluding uh, the series that we've been doing on relationships, and we've been calling it Messy. And we've called it that because while we've been called to love other people, uh, man, that can get messy when you do that. And so the first week, Adam uh, got us started in the right direction, reminding us that we are hardwired by God for relationships, and yet... If we don't do them the way Jesus did them, approach them the way Jesus approached them, man, they can get messy very quickly. And so he encouraged us in that direction. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I talked about marriage. And I think we can all agree that if we do not take care of that relationship, our homes, right, not our houses, but our homes can get messy quick. Last week, we talked about difficult people in our lives. They sure make things messy, unless, of course, we're the difficult person in other people's lives, in which case we're making things messy and we need to stop doing that. So each week we've talked about a relationship in our lives. Today, today we're going to close by talking about the relationship in our lives. So if you're joining us online, thank you for joining us there as well. And if you live in the area, we'd love to have you join us here. Uh, and today, uh, what we're talking about, for some of us, it's about us. Because we've never made the decision to follow Jesus. So that's this relationship that we're talking about. For others of us, it's about a friend who doesn't know, doesn't follow Jesus, and how we can help him come to know, help them come to follow him. But today, what we're talking about is what makes life messy when people who are followers of Jesus have their friendships with people who are not, or are members of a family with those who are not, because Jesus can get in the way of that, and it all of a sudden becomes this messy deal. And we're going to do it through this story of someone you may not know, or, or you may have heard of his name, but you don't know his story, and you've made an assumption about him that other people are making about you. So let's check this out. His name is Saul. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Hold on just a moment. Let's get our bearings. Who is this guy? Right? So if you were to read further in this very same book of Acts, four chapters further on, you would read this, which may help clarify. Then Saul, who was also called Paul. All right. Oh, oh. so this Saul that we read about in the ninth chapter of Acts is the same guy that many of us call the Apostle Paul. Well, why does he have two names? Saul of Tarsus was Jewish, uh, and the Hebrew name that was given to him by his parents would have been Saul, but his father was a Roman citizen, therefore Saul became a Roman citizen, and therefore was given a Latin name. His Latin name was Paul, right? And the custom of dual names was very common in that day, so we've see, we'll see him called by both names. Uh, in this part of the Bible that we call the New Testament, there are 27 books. I just want you to understand how big of a deal he is. Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books. Uh, this book of Acts that we're kind of looking at this morning, at least checking out his story, his story and what God does through him fills over half of this book. He started many churches. He encouraged and strengthened others. This same Paul who history and tradition say died for his faith in Rome during the persecution of Nero. So that's who he is. But this great hero of our faith, one of the leaders of the early church, has not always been a Christian. So here's why this whole thing can get kind of messy. Paul had a past. And if you 
didn't know that, you may want to write that down. When he was little up to the age of five, uh, his mom would have taught him the Jewish faith from five to 13. He would have been taught by one of the rabbis in the local synagogue in his hometown of Tarsus. But later he would go to Jerusalem. He would become a student of a teacher by the name of Gamaliel, who was a very famous, well-known teacher of the faith. And so he had kind of an Ivy League level of religious education, this great education. And he grew up loving the Jewish faith. And he, he despised everything that opposed it, including, including this new cult that had sprung up called Christianity. That's what they would have considered Christianity at that point, a cult. And so Paul became a persecutor of the early Christian church in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, that's kind of our introduction to him. In Acts chapter 7, verses 57 and 58, we're in the midst of this violent uh, execution. They're stoning to death a man by the name of Stephen, who was described as a man full of the spirit and full of faith. In verses 59 and 60, it says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And the very next verse says, and Saul approved of his killing. The message version says, Saul was right there congratulating the killers. The rest of that verse, first verse says, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. People like us who have met together this morning running for their lives. And who was at the center of this persecution? This guy named Saul. Acts 8, 3 says that Saul began to destroy the church. It was his intention to strike a death blow to this new religion. And in our first verse, Saul is breathing out murderous threats against the church and against the disciples. The Greek word for threat means that Saul was damning and cursing with all the harshness of the human language. Look at, look at how Saul is described in, in verse 21 of chapter 9. He's described as the one who is raising havoc. He raised havoc in Jerusalem. The Greek word means to ravage. You would use that word to describe uh, Genghis Khan and what he had been up to, other bloodthirsty tyrants. It meant to sack or destroy by blood or by fire or by murder. In Galatians, which is a letter that Paul would write to the church in Galatia, he says this about himself. He says, for you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church. And that word persecuted means literally to pursue with vicious and malicious intent. How I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I just want to say, if you don't know about his background, wherever Christians lived, Saul and his men were knocking on the door. Wherever Christians sought refuge or escape, Saul was hauling them out, dragging them into the streets, humiliating them, beating them, separating families, throwing them into prisons, and at times committing murder. That's what he's doing in our verses. He wasn't satisfied that the church in Jerusalem had been scattered. He wanted more. So he sought permission and written authority to go to Damascus, 150 miles away, to bring any Christians he found there in chains to go to prison. I tell you all of that because I want to make sure you understand Paul was not a nice guy. And what, listen, what makes it messy isn't that Paul had, this isn't the problem with us and our relationship with our friends. It's not that Paul had a history. It's that my friend has a history as well. That can make this whole thing messy. And the, here's the thing. They know it. And we need to get this. 
There are people who believe that they have too much history for God to accept them. And maybe you think you have too much history. I don't know if you've ever said this. I've heard pe people have actually said this to me. Why, well, if I walked into your church building, the roof would fall in, right? You ever had anyone say that to you? Uh, that if God knew what I've done in my past, if God knew what I did last night, hey, newsflash, he knows what you did last night, and he loves you. I want to make sure we get that. You might be amazed if you knew the darkness lurking in the past of the people who have made a difference in your life. Just look at the people in your row. I know no one's looking at the people in their row. I'm not making eye contact. I ain't looking at nobody, right? Everyone in your row, everyone in this room, everyone who's been in the building this morning, including the guy who's standing in front of you, has a past, which is why Romans 3.23 reminds us, by the way, written by Paul, this guy we're talking about, he said, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So uh, let's complete the original thought. This can be messy because Paul had a past. My friend does too. And so do I. I have a past. You have a past. But some of our friends, not all of them, but some of them don't know who we were. They only know who we are right now and who we're becoming. They don't recognize that we have a past, and it seems to put this wall up between them, an invisible barrier. And on one side is the good, which would be you, and on the other side is the bad, which they see as them, right? And these people, they're people who think that because you go to church, there are people who think because I'm a pastor that either we don't sin or that it's that kind that, you know, God just sweeps under the rug. They don't really pay attention to, but we know that's not true. And again, part of that may be because our lives have been changed by Jesus. So they're seeing the us that Jesus is continuing to make like him, even though we're far. And we know how far we are from sinless. Listen, we're not claiming that. But they don't know that. But what we also know is that we're getting farther from who we were. Every day we become a little bit further from who we used to be. And they don't get that either. And they think that their life is too awful for God. And they need someone who has been where they are and are where they want to be to help them find out that's not true. And so what happened to Paul next could happen to your friend. On your notes, he found out who Jesus is. So that's the next part of our story. Saul, accompanied by this suitable escort, uh, set out on a 150-mile trip to Damascus. It would take him about a week to make that trip. And he was almost there when this bright light from heaven flashed around him in chapter 22 so paul tells the story of his conversion a couple of times in the book of acts and in chapter 22 is one of those times when he talks about it we find out that it's about noon and so it's this bright light that's brighter than the brilliance of the midday sun and saul falls to the ground i don't know if you can imagine how bright this light had to be to knock a grown man to the ground but this light was so bright that he couldn't see verse 7 he hears a voice saul saul why are you persecuting me? And Saul's response is, who are you? I am Jesus who you're persecuting. Get up and go into the city. You'll be told what you need to do. And then the light was gone. And in, our, in verse 7, his entourage heard a sound, but they didn't see anybody. And when Paul tried to open his eyes, he found out he couldn't see either. So this once powerful man is now led blind by the hand into the city of Damascus. Verse 9 tells us for three days he was blind, he didn't eat or drink anything. Verse 10 says that in Damascus there was a disciple by the name of Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Hey, Ananias. Ananias said, hello. Uh, 
And verse 11, the Lord said, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Ask for a man named, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So again, Paul retelling the story, he says that if you want to know who Ananias is, Paul calls him a religious man who obeyed the Jewish law and was highly respected by all the Jewish people who were living there. Well, Ananias knew who Saul was, and he was pretty sure he was most likely on the list of people that Saul was going to come to wreak havoc in his life. And he was pretty sure that God had made a mistake. Verse 13, God, do you know who this guy is? He's been on the Maury Show. You should know who he is. His website is www.ihatechristians.com, right? Verse 12, he, God says, he already knows you're coming. I told him he was going to see an eye doctor. And in my, in my mind, sometimes God giggles when he says things, you know. Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it and placed his hands on Saul. And he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you so that you can see again, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fall from Saul's eyes. And he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. I just want to make sure you understand what's going on, uh, what God is doing with Saul here. So Jesus is initiating a friendship with someone who thought it would be impossible to have a friendship with Jesus, right? I just want to make sure you get that, because Saul's been persecuting the followers of Jesus. It never dawned on him he could ever be a friend of Jesus. But it's exactly what God's been doing since the beginning of time. And it's what I hope you get the opportunity to help your friend or to help your family member who is because of you beginning to figure out who Jesus is. So I'm about to show you something, and if you've got the handout, you'll notice there's space on it for you to be able to draw this thing, uh, because I hope that you will get to share this with your friend. But it goes all the way back to the beginning. God created us to have a relationship with him. And, and somewhere, we read about it in the garden, in the very beginning of Genesis, somewhere along the line, we blew it. Our sin caused this separation, this barrier between us and God. And to be clear, God didn't go anywhere. We moved away from him. And you and I know what that feels like. And we also know that our problem isn't that Adam and Eve sinned. That may have started the whole mess. But our problem with God is that we sinned. And may I add, your friends need to hear you say that you know you are not perfect. Because either they need to know it because they don't, or they already know it, and they need to know that you know it about yourself. Because our sin becomes obvious to people, and it causes us to back away from God. So most people, we try to fix this by doing good stuff. We try to be good enough to get close enough to God, but we get frustrated because we keep coming up short. Because none of us is good enough. And the reason we're trying to fix this in this lifetime is we know if we die, and it follows us beyond this lifetime, that there's a place called hell that has been created that is the absolute absence of God, and it lasts for eternity. The good news of our faith, which we're going to celebrate, right, in just under two months now, the story of Easter, is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, that he might become the answer to our sin problem by dying on the cross. And that cross acts as a bridge for us to get back to God. And, and so uh, the Bible says there are only three things that we need to do. There, if you've got the handout, it's on your notes. I want to make sure you write this down. The first is that you need to believe that this is true. In other words, John 3.16 says, God loves you so much 
that if you will believe, right, if you believe that he gave his only son, if you, is, is Jesus, was he a real man? Did he really live a sinless life? Did he really die on the cross? Is all of that true? If you believe that, right, you, 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 you don't have to perish, right? That's what we're told in John 3, 16. And I just want to say, when you're talking to your friends about this, just like you have had or maybe still do have questions and doubts, can you make sure they know that's okay and help them work through it? Please don't be afraid of the questions that they're going to ask that you don't know the answers to. Everybody has questions, right? Some of them we don't have the answers to right away. That's all right. Let's figure them out together. That's all you need to tell them. Hey, I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to go check with some folks who just might know the answer to that question. And then we'll figure that out together. The second thing we need to do is repent, which is a Bible word, which means not just telling God that I blew it, but repenting means I feel sorry, it's my fault, I'm going to change my behavior. I'm going to stop doing the things I know I shouldn't be doing. I'm going to start doing the things I know that I should be, that I haven't been doing. And that's why in Acts 3 we read, when we repent and turn to God, our sins are wiped out and times of refreshing come from the Lord. The third thing that we need to do is we need to allow ourselves to be baptized. That's the third thing that we're told, Acts 2.38. Our baptism is a physical sign of the decision that we're making. So back to Saul. Remember, blind three days, hasn't eaten for three days, hasn't had anything to drink for three days. Ananias shows up and tells him about Jesus, something like scales fall from his eyes. He's no longer blind. Well, let, me, let me set it up this way. You've been blind for three days. You've been blind for three days. You haven't been able to see a thing. You haven't had anything to eat for three days. You haven't had anything to drink for three days. What's the first thing you would do when you got your sight? Because the very first thing that Saul did was he was baptized, which I think is interesting. Again, when Paul recounts his story, he says, a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law, as we saw, highly respected by all the Jews living there. And he stood beside me and he said, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him and look at what Ananias said. What are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. I just want to say that's, that's Paul's story. And he tells it a couple times in the book of Acts. And when we talk about this sort of thing, people will ask us, so this whole baptism thing, why do you do that? Uh, and what is that thing out in your lobby? Uh, and did you mean to put it out there or did you forget to put it in here? Uh, we've been asked that before, which is an interesting question, by the way. Uh, why do we baptize people? We baptize people because baptism was an integral part of every conversion experience recorded in the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, on your notes, if you've got the handout, it's not in the, the YouVersion app, uh, but it is on the handout, the paper. Uh, every time some, we have examples of people who have given their life to Christ, and then every time they do, they, have, they are sealing the deal with baptism. But it's not just those examples. Jesus was baptized. As a matter of fact, he walked 60 miles to be baptized by his cousin. He told his followers to baptize those who believe. And if he said, if you believe and are baptized, that you will be saved. That's why people who make the decision to follow Jesus, that's why we baptism. Plus, there's two word pictures I'm going to share with you. There's more, but I'm going to share two of them with you uh, that were given in the Bible that explain what happens when we are baptized. The first is, when we're baptized, it's this picture of dying to our old way of life, which is that first blank you filled in, right? Paul had a past. My friend has a past. I had a past. I have a past. 
So when Paul writes to the church in Rome, he gives us this word picture. He says, don't you know that all who share in Christ Jesus by being baptized also share in his death? When we were baptized, we died and were buried with Christ. We were baptized so that we would live a new life as Christ was raised to life by the glory of God the Father. Now, several years ago, Rick Stacy baptized a man in Lake Superior. It was late October, and it was about 9 o'clock at night, and Rick had been talking with Myron and his wife about Jesus, and they were making this decision about who Jesus was going to be in their life. And if they wanted to make him Savior and Lord to seal the deal with the commitment with baptism. And when he tells the story, he says, Myron hesitated for a long time. And then he finally said, oh, I, I, I do want to accept Jesus. But what I've been thinking about is I want to be baptized tonight, right now in Lake Superior. Now, I don't know what you know about Lake Superior, but the average temperature all year round, even in the summer, the average temperature of Lake Superior is 38 degrees. This is late October, and, and it's at night, and the waves are running three feet high, and the water was cold, and the plan was they were going to walk out to their waists uh, into the water, and, but they only, because it was so cold, they only got up to their knees. And then Rick laid Myron down, and the waves washed over him, and he was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they went back to Myron's house for some hot cocoa and a hot soap for their cold feet. Rick, Rick asked him why it was so important to do this at night in Lake Superior. And Myron said, I was in the army. I was an officer um, in the infantry during Vietnam. And I saw things and I did things that no man should ever have to see or do. And I wanted my sins buried in the deepest, coldest place I could think of. In Acts 2, that's why Peter says, turn back to God. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven. And I realize that there may be some in this room who when you look backwards at your life and where you've been and what you've done and what you've seen, you may doubt that that's enough. But we are reminded over and over again in Scripture that baptism is all about dying to that old life it's all about burying everything behind you, all of your past, and to rise to a new life. And it's the other picture, by the way, that Paul paints. And uh, he says that it's like when we're baptized, it's like we're putting on new clothes. Uh, as a matter of fact, in, in the book to the church in Galatia, he writes, all of you are God's children because of your faith in Christ Jesus. And when you were baptized, it was as though you had put on Christ in the same way you put on new clothes. When we decide to follow Jesus... And we make that commitment to him in our baptism. The, the picture of what's going on in our lives is like we're taking off all the old clothes of our past. And we're putting on these new clothes of Jesus' nature and lifestyle. So in that we are putting on Jesus' values and his priorities. In that we are surrendering to Jesus' ways. And we are making him the leader and forgiver of our lives. Which means, by the way, I'm no longer in charge. Now he's in charge of my life. And my guess is that there are folks here this morning who are kind of, I mean, you're wavering on that whole thing. And you've heard the stories, and it's pretty cool to follow along, and you're learning the songs, and, and it's a nice group of people who down there at that church. 
And so you kind of like being around them. But Jesus is calling you to more. He is calling you to follow him with your life. And we'd love to help you with that. As a matter of fact, can I tell you, everyone in this room, you're in this store. You're only one of two people. There's only two people you can be. You can be Paul or you can be Ananias. Everyone here. That's your, one of those is your next step. If you are the Apostle Paul prior to Ananias, then your call is to follow him, to answer that call on your life, to become a follower of his. And if you've already done that, you're called to be an Ananias in someone else's life. Your job, your task for all of us is to help someone else come to know who Jesus is so that they can learn how valuable they are in his sight and become a follower of his. Listen, we make this decision to follow him and it anchors who we are for the rest of our lives. We're not who we're going to be, but we're not who we were either. We are somewhere in between, but we're moving this direction. And every week we stop to remember that. That's how important this is to us. We stop to remember this decision that we made to follow him and we recommit. It's not just about remembering, it's about recommitting to that decision again. And we do that through our time of communion. We hold this piece of bread that reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken on the cross for our sins. And we have this cup of juice that represents his blood which was shed on the cross. Listen, he gave that up for our sake. He didn't do anything wrong. He did that for you. He did that for me. And it takes us back to our baptism where we made this decision to follow Jesus and to allow him to not just save our souls, but to lead our lives. And we recommit ourselves to that decision one more time. So let's go to him in prayer. God, thank you that you allow us the privilege of being your children. We sang that song earlier. And there's some who hear those words, and man, it sounds like a great thing to be, but they don't know what that's like yet. And there are others of us who sang that song, and sometimes for even for, it's just hard to believe that you allow us, because we know how sinful we are. We know what the sin struggle in our life is. And so we come to this moment each week to remind ourselves that you have forgiven our sins. You didn't excuse them. You didn't just sort of wave them off. You died to forgive them. And so, God, we pray that as we take these emblems that remind us of what you did on our behalf, that we would be drawn back to our decision to follow, that we'd be grateful to you for the cross, and we would recommit our lives to follow you again today. And we pray this for your son, Jesus.